Good morning, Mill City Church. It's good to be with you today. How are you feeling this morning? Man, I love this church. I have been so grateful over the years to have been able to come and uh, be with you, worship with you. Uh, you, are, you are a remarkable church, and I just want to say to you, just worshiping with you this morning, looking at the pictures of the serve day, knowing the reports of your faithfulness, the way that you love one another and love the city and this region, I just want to reflect back to you the delight and pleasure of the Lord and to say, well done, Mill City Church. You are a shining light in northern Colorado. So give God glory for one another. You're a wonderful, wonderful church. And, and, and I'm telling you, what you have here is special. Uh, one of the, uh, occasionally I get to visit or talk with other pastors, and there's a lot of people who are discouraged, and rightfully so. The last few years have, have been really difficult, and I know they've been difficult for you, but to see you today thriving, flourishing, to know of how the grace of God is not only abounding to you, but through you to the community around you is such an amazing thing, and it's not to be taken for granted. So praise God, and well done, Mill City Church. I also I also want to say that your, your pastors, Aaron and Jossie, are some of our dearest friends. Aaron said it, but if you're wondering, like, is he just saying that? Or like, no, I'll say it too, you know. Um, but we have known them. He said 23 years. Actually, we were at ORU together, but the reason we didn't really know each other in college because Aaron and Jossie are a lot older than my wife and I, like a lot <laughs> older. It's very obvious, you know. I just, I just say the obvious. Um, but we knew each other there, and then, of course, we worked together at New Life for a number of years, and uh, it's weird, Aaron, because this is the first time that we don't live in the same state as the Stearns. You know, we lived in Oklahoma together, in Colorado, uh, and, and, and the move into California, but the thing about Aaron and Jossie that you know if you know them is, is they are faithful and true. I was thinking about how, what, what are some of the words, and there's so many words I could say, but faithful, uh, they, they persevere, they're the same uh, and then when I think of the word true, I think of that word true as, as, as an integrity, you know. Uh, we have spent thousands and thousands of hours with them in each other's homes, at retreats, in the good times and in the darkest of valleys. And Aaron and Jossie are people of integrity. They are people who love Jesus and who love well. And I, I'm telling you, that is a gift to have pastors like that too. They're not, they're not about the show. They're not about the stage. They're about Jesus and they're about the kingdom. So that's a good thing. Well, this morning we are talking about Ecclesiastes, and it's one of those books in the Bible that you, I don't know if you read through it, you know, because it's a tricky one. And Ecclesiastes comes to us in a different form. It is, the, you know, it's the Bible, so it's the Word of God, but it's not as if you open Ecclesiastes and it's, thus saith the Lord, meaningless. Let's go to lunch, everybody. And so it's one of those books in the Bible that we got to work a little bit harder to say, how is God speaking, us, speaking to us through this book? Ecclesiastes in Hebrew tradition is considered wisdom literature. And wisdom literature says to us, let's learn about God by looking at his world. And we're not going to come up with formulas or rules or hard and fast kind of magic principles, but we're going to have some make we're going to make some observations along the way and we're going to ask God to teach us something about the world and really to teach us something about himself. And so Ecclesiastes is an exploration of life under the sun. Life under the sun, life in its limitations and life in its gifts. And so one of the threads that I think you've been pulling throughout the series is to look at the various things of life and to say, how can this be an icon, something that we can see through and see God, or how can it, that same thing become an idol? 
where instead of seeing through it, we see it and worship it. And you've talked about work, and you've talked about money, and you've talked about all these different things that Ecclesiastes forces us to kind of grapple with. Now, I grew up in Malaysia. It's where I'm originally from. Uh, I I was born there, raised there. And Malaysia is a country full of idols. Its idols are obvious. In fact, Christians make up about 10 or 11% of the population. Muslims make up maybe 40% or so. And then the remaining 50% are roughly split between Buddhists and Hindus. And my dad was raised as a Hindu. Uh, In fact, many of his relatives still are Hindus, and growing up, we would go to their home, and it was very obvious which of the many Hindu gods would be uh, enshrined or adorned in their home. And so you'd see a a statue of Ganesh or a picture of so-and-so Shiva or whatever, and it was very obvious what the idols were. But when we moved to America, I I thought, wow, America has no idols. (laughs) It's just amazing. There's no idols here. (laughs) <laughs> you're laughing, because you realize that's not true. It's just that our idols are harder to see. Our idols are invisible. And, and I have to say, moving to Orange County, California, Southern California, uh, it, I think the idols are a little easier to see. <laughs> the, the novelist Wallace Stegner said, California is just like the rest of America, just more so. <laughs> and so it's like America in focus. And I remember on one of our visits, we're just driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, and there's a giant billboard, and it says, got lips? And I was like, I mean, I've got lips, not like the ones in that picture, though. And I, one of our first functions at the kids' school, you know, I knew I was in trouble when we drove into the parking lot because it was Lambo, Ferrari, Porsche, Mercedes G-Wagon, Tesla, Tesla, Land Rover, Land Rover. And I thought, well, no one's breaking into my 2009 Honda Pilot tonight. <laughs> Like, I don't even need to arm this thing, you know? Like, just leave the doors open. (laughs) We go in, and it's like a meet and greet, and we sit down at a table. You know, it's like first day of school, but you're the parents, you know? And we sit down, and this other couple comes in, and they just look like beautiful people. Like, they look like they walked off the set of Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Some of you don't know what that show is. That's okay. And the, the guy's tall. I mean, I've never felt shorter in my life. He's tall. He's got this beautiful coiffed, you know, blonde hair, shirts halfway down. I don't know why. And he goes, and he goes hello, I'm Dorian. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know what has just happened. Like, what, what happened to my REI jacket, you know, crowd? Anyway, but, it, but it's easier to judge somebody else's idols, isn't it? It's easier to look and say, oh, those people, I bet. And it's actually really easy to get it wrong. It's easy to look at someone's external life or their choices and to assume that you know where the idols are. Maybe their idols are not even wealth or possessions. But it's easy to come to conclusions about somebody else. And I found myself resting and being convicted and saying, God, I don't want to misjudge or mischaracterize. And I began to realize that actually I've got idols in my own life too. And this morning when we open up the scriptures, Ecclesiastes is going to make us confront something that we may not be suspicious of, and that is wisdom itself. We're going to talk about the pursuit of wisdom. Now, it's easy to say, oh, I can, I can see the limitations of material things, and I can see the limitations of earthly pleasures, but wisdom, could you ever have too much wisdom? Could we ever get our pursuit, could our pursuit of wisdom actually lead us to dangerous places? Surely not. Wisdom is amazing. How could we ever go wrong with wisdom? And actually, Ecclesiastes helps us see it in a fresh light. And so pray with me as we begin to open the scriptures this morning. Jesus, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you've not left us on our own, but your Holy Spirit is here. You're already speaking and moving in this place. So as we open up the scriptures, would you open up our hearts and help us to hear you and help us to obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 11 starts out this way. It says, wisdom is as good as an inheritance, an advantage for those who see the sun. Wisdom's protection is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Wisdom makes a wise person stronger than ten rulers who are in the city. I want to say three things to us this morning about wisdom. And the first is this. Wisdom is priceless. There is something about wisdom that is different than a material thing or an earthly pursuit. There's something about wisdom that even... The book of Ecclesiastes is trying to say to us, it is special, it is different. It's as good as an inheritance, but actually it can make, you, you can be stronger than 10 rulers in a city. Wisdom is priceless. Why? Well, it's like the old saying, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach him how to fish, you'll never see him on a Saturday. No, he'll never go hungry again. There's something about wisdom that doesn't just tell us what to think, but it teaches us how to think. Can I say to you that one of the marks of maturity is moving from, tell me if this is right or wrong, to moving from that level of right versus wrong to another level of saying, but is this wise for me? Or is this a foolish decision? Because the right thing done at the wrong time or for the wrong reasons can be the wrong thing. And so growing as a Christian is not as simple as saying, well, pastor or small group leader, just tell me, should I do this or should I not do this? Is this right or is this wrong? Is this and when you, maybe when you were younger, if you grew up in church, that was how it was fed to you because you kind of needed to be spoon-fed when you were younger. But the mark of maturity is that you, you're not just told what to think, but you're taught how to think. There's lots that the Bible doesn't spell out for us. It doesn't tell us how much is too much. It doesn't tell us whether or not you should go on this vacation or that vacation. It doesn't tell us which job to take. It doesn't tell us who to date. There's so much the Bible doesn't tell us. And you're like, what's the point? God wants relationship. And relationship means that you actually have to know him and think with him and think through things. When I was 10 years old, our family moved from Malaysia to America, and I think about that decision, what that must have felt like for my parents, and maybe how nervous they might have felt with all of that. And one day, I think I was 11 or 12, I'd come back from youth group, and I'd won some competition, and I brought home a cassette tape. Uh, if you're under 35, you're going to ask someone what that is. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a, a cassette tape of a band called um, Petra. <laughs> yeah, you, all right, okay. There's a higher place to go. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, Dad, look what I won. You, he goes, what, what is that? I said, it's a, it's a band called Petra. I was like, Dad, it's Christian rock. And now my dad, was, he was raised Hindu, but he was radically saved. And when he became born again, like he was burning his Elvis records. I mean, it was sad. It was sad. But like, but he was, because that, that stuff would be worth a lot now. But, but he, was, he, was, he was radical. He was radical. And, and he, didn't want anything, he didn't want any of that secular music, you know. Only wanted Christian stuff. So he looks at me and he goes, Christian rock? He goes, what's next, Glenn? Christian cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like, I, 
I don't think those are the same thing, you know. I mean, I'm 12, but I don't think those are the same thing. But my, but my, but my, dad, my dad was great. He gave me great advice, and he said, he said, here's what I think you should do. You should listen to this cassette tape for a week and then decide if it brings you closer to Jesus or not. I thought that was good. That was good parent. That was a great parenting move, like inviting me to discern and giving me a grid. Again, not telling me what to think, but teaching me how to think. That's wisdom. Wisdom is this is priceless because you're going to need it for all of life. You're going to need it. You're going to need it for the big decisions and the small decisions. You're going to need it because it helps you grow up. But the second thing that Ecclesiastes shows us about wisdom is that wisdom must be pursued. It doesn't ha- you don't acquire wisdom accidentally. You don't wake up one morning and say, I'm wise now. now wisdom, it, and, and if you've you know, lived a lot of years, you know this. Unfortunately, wisdom doesn't automatically accrue with age. Some people, they got a lot of miles, a lot of tread on the tires, but not much wisdom. So it actually has to be pursued. It doesn't just accrue with Age. In fact, Ecclesiastes, the whole quest of the book of Ecclesiastes is there's an individual, he's named the teacher, the koholeth. And in Hebrew, it could mean the teacher, but it also could just mean the gatherer. And you get the sense that this whole book is this individual's quest going through the world trying to gather insight and wisdom. And he's on a journey to say, what can I learn about how the world works? What can I learn about God as I go through this? And sometimes that word for vanity, havel, it's not necessarily like meaningless or emptiness. Sometimes it means it's a puzzle or a riddle. And so just because you pursue wisdom doesn't mean you're going to understand stuff. You're going to be on this lifelong quest, but I just want to set you up with realistic expectations. You're going to run up against questions that you won't find the answers to. And you'll say, I don't know why this prayer wasn't answered. And I don't know why this happened that way. And I don't have easy solutions to it. Wisdom, nevertheless, must be pursued. And so there's a few things. I just want to pause here and just break it down a little bit more and say, how? How do we actually pursue wisdom? What does it look like? So I just want to spend a bit more time on the second point. I think the most obvious thing about pursuing wisdom is you have to ask. You've got to ask people. It doesn't happen because you, know, you stay passive. You've got to go out and seek it. You've got to ask. But maybe the second thing is you have to ask the right people. There's a great story in the Old Testament. We won't read it today, but it's about Solomon's son, Rehoboam. He becomes king, and he's trying to figure out, how do, what do I do with these amazing like building initiatives and projects, and do I keep it going? And so he consults two groups of advisors. He consults his dad's advisors, and they say to him, listen, we were with your dad. The people are tired. It's been a lot of projects. Maybe just cool your jets, and like, let's just hold ground for a little bit. And he goes, I don't know if I like that. And then he goes and talks to his younger advisors, and his younger advisors are like, you tell these whiny people that your father's waist is like your little finger, which is not an expression we use, but I think is meant to say you ain't seen nothing yet. And he said, if, if, he, if my father used whips, I'll use scorpions. Like, it's going to get harder. We're going to push even more. And, of course, it fractured the kingdom. The nation splits in two, not only because of that, but that was the tipping point. And so it's not just about asking people. You've got to ask the right people. If you're a young person, seek out someone who's 10 years down the road in the career or life stage that you want to be in. Ask them. 
Uh, if, you're an, if you're an older person, ask, ask someone who's younger to say, what's it like? I'm, I'm struggling with my grandkids. Or I'm struggling with my kids. Like, tell me what it's like to, to be in school. Maybe I, it's harder for me to hear from them. Can I hear from you? Ask people. Ask the right people. Ask a variety of people. I, I have come to believe that actually what we need in life is not one north star, but a constellation of relationships. And too often where we go wrong is you're like, well, Glenn, I have tried to find a mentor, and I just cannot find a mentor. That's probably true because we're all broken, fallen, imperfect, not fully wise human beings. And so if you're looking for that one mentor, that one North Star, it's going to be a frustrating experience. And maybe for for some of you that are in your 20s or 30s, and you're like, I've I've even seen too many stories of leaders failing that I'm disillusioned with the North Star thing. I understand that. Aaron and I have walked through a a season where someone who was a bright star in our faith journey fell. But I think maybe how God has designed us is to actually look for a constellation. And it's actually how people navigate, isn't it? Sailors don't navigate by a singular North Star. They navigate by constellations. Well, not anymore, but they used to. And constellations say that uh, I've, got, I've got a host of it. This person is really great about investing. And this person is really smart about parenting. And this person is really, you know, and, and you have a, a few different voices in your life that make up a constellation. So when I say ask the right people, I mean plural people. My wife and I and our family, we made a huge decision. Uh, you know, it, it was August of last year that we made the move to, to Costa Mesa. And it's, it's a massive thing. We'd been in Colorado Springs for 22 years. We always imagined that this was going to be it. This was going to be our, our kind of our, our long-term trajectory. And we did everything we could to put roots down. But the Lord began to make it really clear to us. But, you know, you might imagine that's a risky decision to come to. And so when the idea first was presented to us, it was March of 2021, we were like, no, that can't be the Lord. Summer of 2021, we were like, how is it we keep thinking about this? November of 2021, I went out there to preach and I felt like the Holy Spirit like ambushed me after I finished preaching, just started weeping, overcome with the presence of God, feeling this burden and this compassion for this church. Still trying to dismiss it, December of 2021, I was up here on a visit, and there were just more little signs and breadcrumbs along the way. But we began to talk with people. We talked with Aaron and Jossie. We talked with other friends who had taken, you know, sort of leaps of faith. We listened to people who were lead pastors. We listened to my parents. We listened to Holly's parents. We listened to people who were in our lives. And there was a unity in what they were saying, and they were saying, we think that there could be something to this. And some of them were stronger. They're like, this, the Lord is in this. And we took our time. Let time be your friend when you're making big, disruptive decisions. You don't want to blow up your life. But Proverbs 13 says this, walk with wise people and become wise. Befriend fools and get in trouble. So you got to ask. you got to ask the right people. But I'll give you the bonus third sub-point here is <laughs> you actually have to act. I mean, it's, it's, it'd be a terrible thing if we sought all this counsel, and everybody's like, we really sense the Lord is with us, but we're praying with you. And then they're like, so what'd you decide to do? And you're like, nothing. You know what you should do, but you're not yet acting. That's still not quite pursuing wisdom, is it? And so I know at Mill City, you've been doing this weekly practice, and so I want to pause here and offer you a weekly practice about pursuing wisdom. 
It's, it's, it's four pieces to this. It, it might take you some time, and you might do one piece of this on a different day and, you know, one, a day and, and, and move on to the next one, but take, start by taking an inventory of your relationships. Who are the people that I really allow to speak into my life? Who are the people that really carry, their voice carries weight to me? The volume of their voice is like at an eight or a nine. Like, I, I hear them. Just write those people. And then, and then write down, are they leaning me towards wisdom or foolishness? Now, you got to make sure nobody sees this, okay? <laughs> and, then, and then thirdly, if you feel safe with this, find the ones that are lean, tend to lean you towards wisdom. They tend to give you wise counsel and process a decision with them. Say, I just I want to talk about this with you, this job opportunity or this, you know. And then, and then fourthly, if there's, a, if there's an action required to it, make sure that you take it all the way to that. Act with that. Does that sound good, Mill City? We good? Okay. Let's keep reading in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 23. The teacher says, I tested all this by wisdom, and I thought, I will be wise. But it eluded me. It got, out, it got beyond my reach. And this is one of the repeated themes in Ecclesiastes is the harder he chased something, the more elusive it became. Or the more he pulled on the thread, the more it unraveled. And he's like, what? And we don't expect this from wisdom. Because we think, can you, again, can wisdom ever mislead us? Can't it become an end in itself? But even wisdom is not an end in itself. The end goal of the Christian life is not to accumulate wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1, at the very beginning of the book, this is what the teacher says. He says, I am the teacher. I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to investigate and to explore by wisdom all that happens under heaven. It's an unhappy obsession that God has given to human beings. And when I observed all that happens under the sun, I realized that everything is pointless or there's a riddle to it. It's, there's a, conf a confusing complexity to it, a chasing after the wind. What's crooked can't be straightened. What isn't there can't be counted. And I said to myself, look here, I have grown much wiser than any who ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has absorbed great wisdom and knowledge. But when I set my mind to understand wisdom and also to understand madness and folly, I realized that this too was just wind chasing. He says it up front. Right at the beginning of the book, you're like, wait a second, wait, Ecclesiastes, this is wisdom literature. What do you mean that after all the wisdom you gained, you realize that this too was like chasing after the wind? How can it be? It's because what the Bible is trying to say to us is that these good gifts from God are not meant to be ends in themselves. They're not meant to be the end in themselves. Remember the difference between an icon and an idol. An idol wants you to look at it. An icon wants you to look through it. Wisdom becomes an idol when we make it the object of our pursuit. And we're like, I just want to learn more. I just want to understand more. I just want to figure life out more. I just want to figure things out. Instead of saying, wisdom is a means of looking through it. And when I look through it, I'll see this is the third and final thing about wisdom, that actually wisdom is a person. Wisdom is priceless. Wisdom must be pursued. But ultimately, what the Bible is trying to show us is that wisdom is a person. It's not a set of information. It's not a checklist of doctrines. It's 
Son of God himself. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And Paul, thank God, Ecclesiastes isn't the only book that we have in the Bible. When you keep reading the scriptures, you, you, you get to John 1, and John says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the very wisdom of God, and the word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus, and you're like, oh, he's the wisdom of God in human flesh. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But here it is. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. See, Ecclesiastes is the story of the teacher trying to find wisdom in the world. But the Gospels tell us a story of the teacher who is wisdom in human flesh, who says, if you see me, you see God. If you look at my life, you're going to understand what God is like. And when you find me, you've found everything. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, everything's meaningless. Jesus says, but if you have me, you have life and life more abundantly. Because I, Jesus says, I am the end of it all. I'm the goal of all of this. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. It also means that the wisdom revealed in Jesus looks like a cross. It looks like something unexpected, isn't it? Sometimes one of the best ways to test if you're actually acquiring wisdom is to ask yourself, but does this look like Jesus? If Jesus was living my life, I think that was Dallas Willard's explanation of discipleship, is if Jesus was living your life, these are the choices he would make. This is the way he would inhabit your world. And we have to ask ourselves, is, does this look like cross-shaped, self-giving, sacrificial love? Or does this look like the puffing up of ourselves? When wisdom becomes an end in itself, then it's just another way to lift ourselves up and to say, look how wise I am. But when wisdom points us to Jesus, we actually begin to empty ourselves. and We actually begin to serve. And we actually begin to give. And we actually begin to love. So as the worship team or as the you know, um, keyboard player comes this morning, I want us to start to turn our hearts toward the real pursuit in all of this, which is Jesus himself. And I, I, um, one of my early friendship moments with Aaron was Aaron would try to get me to go skiing. But Aaron's idea of teaching me to ski was to take me to the top of like peak nine at Breckenridge and say good luck, you know. It's just like... Uh, the teacher. <laughs> but you know, when you go to these ski resorts, ski slopes, there are signs that, that happen along the highway as you get close. And the closer you get to a resort, there's a little sign that'll say, ski area. And no person in their right mind sees the sign that says ski area and pulls the car over to the shoulder. Here we are, honey. Let's get out. Let's get our skis on. Right here on the side of I-70. 
You're like, that's just a sign. It's not actually the slope, right? You don't stop at the sign. You get to where the sign is pointing. Wisdom is a sign. Our goal is not to stop with, well, I'm so glad I just learned a lot today. The goal of church, the goal of a sermon is not to say, I took some good notes, learned a lot today. It's good. Don't stop at the sign. Get to the thing the sign is pointing to. Get to the thing the sign is pointing to. What we're after above everything is Jesus. More than anything else in our lives, and maybe you're here this morning, or you're watching online, and maybe church for you is like, well, I was just hoping to learn a few more you know, tips, tools, insights, life hacks to just make my life a little better. I understand that. And I actually think it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful way to start coming back to church or coming to church. But you know what? The good news that we have for you is much better than that. The good news that we have for you is not just, here's a few tips to make your job better, or to make your marriage work or your dating life a little bit sweeter. Like, if that's all we had to offer as church, I mean, like, there's lots of other places that could do that. So good news that we have is actually much better than little bits of advice. The good news that we have is a Savior who came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves, who comes to do through us by His Spirit what we cannot do on our own. We have a Savior who not only is wisdom personified, but invites us into a life that looks like His. And so this morning, I wonder if you'd stand with me, all of you. And just open up your hands all over the room. And just right here in this moment, right here in this moment to let your heart orient towards Jesus. Jesus, it's you. Everything else in this life, you're the one who was before all things. You're the one through whom all things were made. Everything under the sun, everything above it, all things in heaven and on earth. And so we're asking this morning that you would lead us to the center. Lead us to the one who's holding all things together. Lead us to Christ himself. Come Holy Spirit. Some of you are here and you just feel out of your depths. You feel like life has just submerged you in the storm. Reach out for Jesus today. Let him be the rock that is higher than you. Jesus, we run into these moments, these problems, these riddles that we can't solve, these tensions that we can't erase. Lead us to Christ. Lead us to yourself. Lead us to crucified and risen one. 
turn our hearts again and again and again to you. Come, Holy Spirit. In all our pursuits, may we find you. The greatest treasure, the greatest prize, the greatest wisdom of all. We glorify you now, in Jesus' name.